Eastern Michigan University's annual undergraduate symposium features hundreds of students who have works of art, scientific research, and solo and ensemble performances to share. Last summer, we helped to share the work of some of the students presenting at the 40th annual symposium, but this is an annual event, so we're back for a second season to help feature some of the students presenting at the 41st annual symposium. My name is Ronia Kabansug, and this is Symposium. Civics and political science were never my strongest subjects in school, so I was venturing a little out of my comfort zone with Jack Swartzinski's symposium presentation. Jack is a senior political science major, and he'll be presenting a paper titled The Implementation of the 14th Amendment During Reconstruction. I was partially expecting to learn about some complex political theory or a really technical historical analysis, and that's definitely part of Jack's work, but I also came away with the story of the kind of character arc of the 14th Amendment. It was born at a really critical moment in our nation's history, it was met with some opposition and straight-up neglect as it was growing up, but decades later, it kind of emerged as this underdog and what Jack describes as the key to unlocking the first eight amendments, the Bill of Rights. But before we get there, let's start with this. What is the 14th Amendment? So the 14th Amendment is the amendment that was passed shortly after the Civil War in uh, 1868 that granted the rights, uh, guaranteed the rights of not only uh, black people to vote, uh, but and this is the controversial point of whether or not it also extended the first eight um, amendments of the Bill of Rights to the citizens, to all citizens of the United States. At the time, the rights outlined in the Bill of Rights, so freedom of speech, right to bear arms, due process, all that good stuff, were only truly protected if they were protected at the state level. So protection of those rights varied depending on where you were. When the 14th Amendment showed up after the Civil War, it seemed like its main goal was to grant voting rights to Black Americans. But it also had the potential to extend other rights, the freedom of speech, right to bear arms, and the rest, to all citizens. Jack considers the original intentions of the framers of the 14th Amendment. Yeah, so when you look at the speeches of one of the key framers, John Bingham, and the many other members of Congress and the Senate, who were uh, debating this issue, it becomes clear that it was uh, the big key was to uh, grant suffrage and enfranchisement to the newly uh, freed slaves in the South, but also a view of expanding these rights to all of American citizens as a guarantee, certainly amongst men. It, it, to me, it became clear that that was the case. Now, there are other arguments uh, put up that the 14th Amendment doesn't clearly state that, doesn't clearly uh, promote that idea. But when you look at more since the 1990s and you look at uh, some of the more federalist uh, views such as uh, Richard Ains and their analysis, it becomes clear that, uh, that no, that they're, whether it was done sloppily uh, or not, if you look at the language of the 14th Amendment and you look at the actions that they were trying to take during that time, particularly with the other civil rights bills that were passed during this time, it becomes very clear that there is a key uh, dedication towards uh, guaranteeing these citizenship rights. So it seems that the 14th Amendment was intended to extend not only voting rights, but citizenship rights to Black Americans. But given the kind of shakiness of the Bill of Rights, it wasn't clear what those citizenship rights were. So it was there, there was this new wave of thinking as to 
what it meant to be an American citizen. So the 14th Amendment really has some power here to guarantee rights for all Americans. But Jack explains that because of the contentious post-Civil War Reconstruction era, it didn't turn out so great. In the aftermath of Reconstruction, the South, seeing the enfranchisement of Black citizens, uh, actually began, uh, that was the formation of the Ku Klux Klan. And it led to a, a lot of violence in the South. And then also the actions that they would take to just whittle down the actions of uh, Reconstruction. As Reconstruction dragged on into the 1870s, and given that slow start, it slowly began to lose steam. You, know, you have to think the North had been basically waging a war against slavery for 15 years. That, that effort and the motivation and the generation of abolitionists that had fought so hard had begun to die out or leave office. Uh, and with uh, Grant leaving office in uh, 1876, it really it became difficult any of those efforts to take place. And that's where you start seeing Jim Crow and other uh, Supreme Court actions to uh, basically water down the 14th Amendment. So it wouldn't be all that practical to civil rights until the 1920s and 30s again. And the Supreme Court, while it should have been protecting citizens' rights, really didn't. Yeah, so we have to examine a number of Supreme Court cases pertaining to uh, the 14th Amendment, how it was applied. One of the most famous ones uh, would be the Slaughterhouse Cases of 1872, uh, which was actually a case of white merchants going to the uh, federal government and saying that their rights under the 14th Amendment had been denied. Uh, Louisiana was putting big restrictions on their uh, meatpacking plants. And the government said, the Supreme Court basically said, it doesn't apply to uh, you. It only applies to Black people. You're not a newly freed slaves. It doesn't apply to you. So they, were so they were denied under that. And that had a huge impact on the expansive view of the 14th Amendment, which we would see much later in the 20th century. Uh, and it also it became clear that the Supreme Court, which was still held largely by uh, Democrats who had been uh, favorable to secession, uh, playing very uh, tightly with the 14th Amendment. They actually fairly disgusting cases, which I get into detail later in the paper and in the demonstration, that they were uh, denying protection to Black people. There was a, a massacre in, that was a, a subject of a case in 1875 where Black people were denied justice in that case after over nearly 150 Black people being lynched in that situation. So it was very, it, it, the Supreme Court, in my view, was uh, putting a lot of judicial exercise into the uh, 14th Amendment and not looking at what it was actually meant to do. And we're not acting, in my idea, in, in good faith. The end of this period is pretty anticlimactic and kind of disappointing. So the traditional mark of the end of Reconstruction in a serious way is uh, 1876 when Ulysses S. Grant loses his bid for a third term as president. Uh, at that time, he was, unfortunately, he was being rocked with a lot of scandals and there was a lot of corruption in his office. Uh, most historians looking at the evidence show that he was not directly involved in that, but he kind of got wrapped up in it anyways. Uh, and then there was a continued issue of uh, just a slow lack of motivation. And you have to remember that these cases had already, you know, there was the slaughterhouse cases in 73, you know, the, the legal mechanisms for the 14th Amendment were getting narrowed down really, really fast. And 
more southern states are being admitted into the union because they were meeting those requirements, at least in name by that time that that happened. So it was the energy and the, the path forward for reconstruction was really starting to disappear. And so as a result, it, just, it, it kind of petered out. So we're not looking too good, but Jack says that after reconstruction, the 14th Amendment makes a comeback. Yeah, so this kind of goes into uh, the literature that would start in the starting in the 1940s when there was this resurgence of the use of the 14th Amendment and incorporation of civil rights in the United States uh, to the states uh, was really picking up. That question was being asked over and over again as to whether or not the 14th Amendment actually did. And as I kind of mentioned earlier on, uh, a good portion of literature between um, the 1940s and 1970s basically said, no, it didn't that it simply was not meant to incorporate the Bill of Rights to the states. In more recent times, with uh, kind of an increase in originalist writing in legal theories, uh, there's, there's been this recognition of the fact that, no, the 14th Amendment and the framers didn't end for this to be an action by incorpor to incorporate the Bill of Rights to the states and give and guarantee all Americans that ability to vote freedom of speech be securing your property, all, all that. What happens in the 1920s is there's a large string of cases, and since uh, basically going almost after each one of these rights, uh, particularly you know, starting out with freedom of speech and applying the freedom of speech at the national level that you have uh, to the state itself. So if you know, the state of Michigan could deny you your ability to, to speak on a certain issue, you could sue the state of Michigan and you could get a lawyer who could argue that the 14th Amendment incorporates that First Amendment right to the state. And so therefore the state of Michigan has to uh, uphold a strict standard and hold a strict scrutiny when handling free speech cases. Basically it sets the standard that if a state is denying you your right to have a firearm or to speak your mind or to vote, the federal government has the ability to then go in under the 14th Amendment and ensure that you have those rights secured. The 14th Amendment is like a tool. It's like, it's like the key to unlocking those eight amendments. It's why it's the most important, arguably the most important amendment in the American legal system. I like that comparison that it's like the, it's the key to unlocking the first eight amendments. It kind of, to me, it sounds, it almost sounds like the underdog amendment where it started out kind of weak, but it's become really critical today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much to Jack Swartzinski for sharing his research with us. Be sure to check out his full presentation on March 26th at EMU's Undergrad Symposium, and you can find all the appropriate links to that in the podcast description or on our website. To learn more about EMU's Undergraduate Symposium, you can go to emish.edu forward slash symposium. This episode was reported and produced by myself, Ronia Kabunsug, and thanks for listening.